Renaissance Church is focusing our attention in this year ahead on three words. Uh, they're on the side screens here, gather, grow, and go. We wanna be a church this year that gathers to see Jesus. We think that's the most important thing for a church to do, to gather to see Jesus. And we believe that when people see Jesus, it changes them, they grow. And we wanna be a place where people grow. Every single one of you, wherever you are in faith, whether you are a seasoned follower of Christ or you're not even on the path yet, we believe that this year would be a year where we hope you'd see Jesus and start to grow. And the goal that Jesus had when he gathered his followers so that they would grow was that they should go into the world and show other people who he is. And we wanna be about that as a church also. Last week, we took a close look at Jesus' interactions uh, around uh, essentially his school where he had gathered men and women to grow as followers of his. We talked very simply about how the growth that Jesus intends is comprehensive. It's not just one thing. It involves the mind and it involves one's actions and one's affections as well. Uh, that is the growth that Jesus aimed at was growth in the head and in the hands and in the heart. And I promised last week that this week we'd address the, the final of those three, the heart. And here's why. Uh, the truth about Jesus' intentions with each one of us is before he even wants our minds or our hands, he wants our hearts. And here I'm letting it out to you what I believe about all of you, those of you I know well, in addition to those of you who I've never met. Uh, it is this conviction that before Jesus even wants you to believe something about him and have an idea in your head about him, before Jesus even wants you to do a good thing for him, both of those are important. What Jesus wants is your heart. And what he wants is for you to know through and through that you are beloved by him. And that the reason you should give him your heart is he is the Lord of all who loves you with a love that is unimaginably high and deep for you. That there's nothing that you could have done in the past or will do in the future that would ever thwart his intentions for you, which are through and through pure benevolence. And I want you to know that this morning. And the reason I want you to know that is if you try to go out and show someone Jesus, but your heart hasn't been given to him yet, you can't show them who Jesus is. And here's why. Because if, you're, if your heart isn't given to him, you may share your beliefs and what you think, and you may do good deeds, but Jesus is more than beliefs or good deeds. He is the living presence of God who came to embody this truth for you, that you are first and foremost his beloved daughter, his beloved son, and what he wants more than anything is for you to understand yourself in that way. And what you must see if you will be a person who's gathered by him and then begin to grow because you've seen him is how beloved you are. And what I want you to see this morning is one moment where that happens for somebody. There's a man who goes from being a, a sort of spectator, really, someone who has some ideas about Jesus and maybe has done some good things. He goes from being someone like that to someone who is completely and totally given over to Jesus. His heart has been given to him entirely. And the reason I want us to see this is two reasons, okay? First, for those of us who are gathered here and who have already decided to follow Jesus, and there are among us a good number who are in that, uh, in that way, that we have seen Jesus, we've decided to follow him, and our heart has been given to him. For those of us who are in that place, 
seeing the scene we'll observe this morning, I hope will cause the fire that is already alight in your heart to burn with greater intensity so that you're more joyful and free and peaceful as you go to show Jesus to others. So if that's where you are, would you have that in mind? That's the goal for this morning. Have you got it? If you're in this other group and there are among us others who have not decided to follow Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Maybe we haven't seen enough or what we've seen makes us hesitant or there are other good reasons in our minds and hearts to wait. If that's you, what I want for you this morning is to see the love of God for you first in such a way that it breaks your heart open and it makes you joyfully run to Jesus saying, take me, I'm yours. That's what I want. I want for something new to happen inside of you that's never happened before, that you're so flooded with love because of the sense that God loves you this much that it would transform you altogether. And by the way, even those of us who have believed could stand a little of that too, don't you think? So here's the setting of the scene we're going to observe. It's just one man. We're going to look at what happens for one man. And the setting is in the city of Jerusalem. It's the Passover which means there are thousands more people in the city than normal. There are religious pilgrims who've gathered in the city where we ourselves find find, uh, us also gathered. And they're there because they're remembering this old story of God's deliverance of his people from oppression. That's what Passover was, this celebration of God's miraculous deliverance of people so the chains that once held them are broken off. Uh, Just an aside, uh, do you still have some chains that you would like to see broken off of your heart and off of your life? Most of us do. Everybody is in the city celebrating that moment. Now, we're not actually in the city because we're right outside of the city on a hill, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. And that means the place of the skull. Does that sound like an ominous name? It's named that because it's a place where they execute criminals. And on this Passover, there are three who have earned capital punishment and they're on three crosses and in the center is Jesus. And this scene we're going to look at takes place on the day that Jesus was crucified and died. In that crowd, there are thousands who are there simply for the entertainment and the spectacle of a public execution. Isn't there something hideous about a crowd gathering to watch someone die? And do you think that if this was a part of our culture, lots of people would attend? I'm afraid the answer is yes. There are also in that crowd 71 men who are a part of a very formal religious institution that was actually responsible for condemning, especially the center criminal, to his fate. They're called the Sanhedrin. They are there as the execution happens, and they're not there for entertainment. They're there for a sense of accomplishment. That man's dying because of what they did, and they meant to do it. And then also in that gathering, there are the followers of Jesus, the men and women, some of whom we've learned about in the weeks behind us and others that we've not thought of, who are not happy with what's happening. They're heartbroken. And they're observing this perversion of justice and they are scandalized and they can't even believe what's happening, but they're also gathered there as are Jesus' mother and family. And can you imagine a greater mix of grief and shameful glee all in one place. That's where this scene happens. There's one other man, and this is the one we're gonna look at, who's there too. And he finds himself in the unfortunate position of being kind of in more than one of those groups. And his name is Joseph. 
Uh, have you ever been in more than one group? Think about this now. Yes, you follow Jesus, but there's a setting where maybe you're not fully in that group. Do you know what I'm saying? This is what we're gonna see with Joseph. What we're gonna do is observe this man. We're gonna dig to see what we know about him and can be known about him and then ask the question, what is it that changed him? Because what we're gonna see is a dramatic change in him. In chapter 19 of John, verse 38, we're introduced to him in this way. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews. And I'm going to stop there because we have enough information for us to pause and understand him. We see that he's a secret follower because of fear. I want you to set that aside for a moment because it will make more sense when we understand who he is. And the other thing we're told about him is what town he comes from. Do you see it up there? Joseph of Arimathea. You all know about Arimathea, right? No, because no one knows anything about Arimathea. And that's because it was such an insignificant, meaningless little town that it didn't matter. And the people who came from Arimathea were small people. People who had no influence or power, no resources, they were farmers, except for Joseph of Arimathea. He turns out to become a very wealthy man, and we know this from other information we have about him in the other Gospels. Some of you will know that the story of Jesus' birth all the way through his death and resurrection is not only told in John, but also in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. We get information about Joseph from those other places too, and one thing we learn is he's rich. He owns a plot of land right outside of Jerusalem, and to own land in the city or right outside of it, you gotta have some money. And not only does he have land, on that land there is a rock-hewn tomb that is a burial plot and only extremely wealthy people can afford them. And so what we know in addition to Joseph's misgivings about being an outward disciple is that he started very humbly and then became really rich. And there's a history in that, right? If you live in prestigious summit now, right? And you started down in the Jersey Shore in some podunk nowhere town. And maybe you're starting to feel like Joseph. Yeah, that's me. I'm somebody now. That's the first thing. Here, there's another thing about him. Not only was he wealthy, but that group that was there when Jesus was dying that I mentioned, the Sanhedrin, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He left this small town. He came to the big city. He was financially successful, and then he was religiously successful. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 who were responsible for judgment when it came to capital crimes. If somebody was going to be executed, the group that was responsible for passing judgment was the Sanhedrin, and they had to appeal to the Roman emperor in order to have somebody killed, but whenever that happened, the Sanhedrin was the judicial body that was responsible for it, and Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. So he had a reputation on this community. And then there's one other thing that Luke tells us as well. He didn't agree with their judgment about Jesus. I want you to try to use your imagination. You've, you've come from humble beginnings. You've worked really hard to earn a name for yourself in this big city. Then you get on this religious council and you are a prominent member. You have all kinds of respect and relationship and connections because of it. And now there's a, a, a man who's been brought on trial and you watch your peers decide that he's guilty and should be killed, but you don't think it's the right thing to do. That's Joseph. 
And you know, we don't read a single word about his resistance to what they did. And the reason we don't read anything about it is because he chose not to say anything at all. He thought it was wrong, but he kept his mouth shut. And the reason he kept his mouth shut is right there in John 19, 38. He was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. That is, for fear of what would happen if it was known that he didn't agree with the Sanhedrin. That was the community of Jewish religious folks who he feared. He knew if it got out that he was a follower, he would literally lose everything. Can I ask you, have you ever found yourself afraid of what might happen if your faith in Jesus got out? If you're not there following him, you, you, this is not your thing. But have, have any of you who are disciples ever been afraid of what happens if someone knows of your faith? Maybe in your family group or your friends or at work, have you? Am I the only, okay, some of you have. I can remember when I was in eighth grade, I became a Christian over the summer and I was so excited, I spray painted a Bible verse and the band's name on my skateboard, Striper. Any Striper fans? Yeah? Yeah, you have to say yeah if you're a fan. It's not yes, yeah, Striper. And then I wrote a Bible verse on my Trapper Keeper. Did you have Trapper Keeper? Yeah, it was the jeans one. And it was a Proverbs something or other. It was the truth about being kind and truthful. That was a passage about that. And I still remember when I sat down next to Kevin, he was like the popular soccer player in, in freshman year. And he said, Prov, what's that? And I said, it's, uh, it, it, it's short for my favorite cheese, provolone. I couldn't admit that I was a Christian. I was afraid. Have you ever, have you ever been in a place where you know you should say something? because you're a follower, but you don't, because you're too afraid of what will happen if you do. That's what it's like to be a secret follower. Have you ever been in a place where the opposite happens? You know what's, what's going on right here is wrong and I should say something. Jesus would have me say something here. It is not right for me to keep my mouth shut, but you just can't say it. It's a secret follower. Uh, there's a group of people and they have a lot of power over you. Maybe it's friends in high school or in middle school. Maybe it's your peers at work. Maybe it's your family of origin. They're all going in this direction. You know that's not the right place for you to go as a follower of Jesus. You don't want to go there, but you can't say, I'm not going because of my faith. It's just too threatening what you might lose. That is what's happening to Joseph of Arimathea. He can't let on that he's a follower of Jesus because he's afraid of what he might lose. Can you relate? Fear will keep us from being what God wants us to be. Understand, please, God doesn't want us to be judges that judge other people. That's Jesus' job. He doesn't want us to be religious zealots who beat up on others. That's not anyone's job, really. It's not supposed to be what we're called to be. He wants us to be people who go and show Jesus. And when we're afraid, we can't do that. And sometimes for us, it might be that we're afraid to say something when we should or to be quiet when we should or to go somewhere that we should go to because Jesus' follower would go there, but we can't or vice versa, to retain ourselves from going down a road we're not supposed to go on. But for whatever it is for you, you must know that now you relate to Joseph. He's a, f a follower, but he's keeping it back. And what God wants is us for, for us to let it out. And no matter what you have to lose, now here's where I don't know what you would have to lose, but I do know this. No matter what you'd have to lose to follow him, you should lose it. There's nothing that you retain by pretending not to follow Jesus that's worth holding on to. Just as there's nothing that you can possibly lose for following him that you should have anymore. Because lose it. 
And I know this is a big thing that I'm asking, not for everybody. For some of you, you don't have to lose much because we live in a place where we're quite free. But for others, there are people who grow up in a Jewish family who to regard Jesus as Messiah means to lose something that the rest of us can't imagine. You understand that? There are people who grow up in Muslim families who come to this country for opportunity and then they bump into some Christians who are winsome and they begin to think maybe there is something in Jesus, but they have to come secretly because if it, if it gets out, the loss for them is hard for us to dream of, but it's true, it happens. Even here, it happens. Do you know that? But here is the word that I dare to say. Whatever you lose for following Jesus, lose it. Whatever keeps you uh, secretive, uh, consider uh, being risky and going for it anyway. What we'll see in a moment is, is what happens to Joseph is that he sees something in Jesus that finally gives him the power and the strength to let go of everything and to go after Jesus, not just with his mind or with his hands, but with his heart. And I want you to see what it is. And I want you to see what it is because what I want is for your heart to go out to Jesus. And I want it to go out to Jesus not because you're afraid or because you're anxious, but because you're overwhelmed with this beautiful, passionate love that he has for you, that he's decided to have for you just where you are. And that's what happens with Joseph. The reason we know he's altogether transformed is what is recounted next in the narrative. So you have it so far. He's there as Jesus is crucified. He doesn't agree with the verdict, but he's so far been silent. And watch what happens. This is the second half of verse 38. Joseph asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed the body. Now, so far, this is ordinary, and there's nothing spectacular about it. And the reason it's ordinary is in this day, when a criminal was crucified, after it was all done and finished, it was important for someone to remove the corpse from the cross. And especially because it was Passover, it would have been taboo and shameful for the Jews who'd gathered in that place to have a dead body on the cross after sunset and then during the Sabbath, it would have to be there all day. And so whenever there was a crucifixion like this, what was expected is after the criminals died, someone would take their bodies down and this is what happened to criminals. Please listen. Their bodies were taken right outside of the city and thrown in the garbage dump so that they would have the same burial that a wild animal's body would have. Because to the community that had crucified these criminals, that's what they were. And so it's ordinary that the body should be taken down, but what's unusual is that someone with as much dignity and power and authority as a person who's a part of the Sanhedrin would go to Pilate and ask for the body. That's not normal. And so, if you would use your imagination, now you're seeing the members of the Sanhedrin watch as one of their rank has gone out and approached Pilate and asked for the body, which is not normal. But there's something else that you see. And this is where we begin to see what's happening for Joseph. He wasn't alone. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. If you and I were there, we would know that 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe is an extravagant expense, something that one person really couldn't afford. It would have to be a large group that pooled their money together to get that. And then you would also know that to approach 
A body with these things in hand would mean that you do not intend to throw the body onto the garbage dump. And if you've read the New Testament, as some of you have, you'll know the name Nicodemus, won't you? Did you see what's said about him? He had come to Jesus at night. You know, just like Joseph, there was a time period for Nicodemus where he believed in Jesus, but he didn't want anyone else to know because he was also afraid of what it would mean if it got out. And so he came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus under cover of darkness because he wasn't yet ready for it to be revealed that this Jesus was his master. And now Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea have stepped out from the crowd carrying these materials for a burial. And look at what we read next. This is verse 40. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. The burial custom of the Jews was that when a body was treated with myrrh and spices and wrapped in linen cloth, there had to be at least one thing that was true about that body, and that, was, that is that it was a body that deserved the dignity of a, the burial of a righteous and royal person. The moment that Joseph and Nicodemus with him came forward and treated Jesus' body in this way was the moment they said publicly in front of everyone else, we have decided that this is not a criminal worthy of this kind of treatment. This is our Lord and King. And we are going to let our actions show it and we don't care anymore who sees it or what it means for us. Let us lose the whole world, but we will not any longer stand in the shadows pretending we're not actually united to this one because now in this moment, our hearts have gone out to him and he is our Lord and King. And in front of all of the community, which will now forever be broken with them and push them away as outsiders, Joseph and his friend Nicodemus have declared their allegiance to Jesus. And my friends, this is the moment in which their hearts have been surrendered to Jesus fully. It is what I want for every single one of us. Those of us who have already decided to follow Jesus and those of us who have been holding back The narrative goes on in verse 41. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified that is close enough for everyone to see. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And you know whose tomb that is? Help me out here. Yeah. That was the thing a long time ago he worked really hard for which is supposed to hold his body after he died. But I'll tell you what, when he saw Jesus, he died. Do you know what I mean by that? The old Joseph died, and there was no no need for that grave anymore. And so now he said it's for Jesus. And so he and his friend brought the body of Jesus there. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And I can translate that by saying, Joseph was no longer a secret follower of Jesus, but a public one who was prepared to lose everything that would be lost for letting that be known. And the reason was because his heart was given totally to Jesus. And it's what your heart was made for. Those of you who have already given your heart to Jesus were made to give it again. And those of you who never have are made to give it to him. Not because you're afraid, but because you're overwhelmed by his love. And that... That's the question. What happened that made Joseph do this? And the clue is in the very beginning of this narrative. And it's three words that I left off when I read verse 38. Look at the way verse 38 in John 19 starts. 
It says, after these things. And what that tells us is that everything that happened with Joseph was the result of these things which happened right before this narrative. And those things are quite simply the events that unfolded from the moment that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane right up to the point where he was nailed to the cross. And if you don't know those events, I have to tell you, because this is what Joseph saw, and the way he saw Jesus face those events is what broke his heart wide open. Please imagine this if you don't know it. Imagine Jesus there in the garden at night praying, pleading with his heavenly father that he wouldn't have to go to the cross. His friends and all of the the apostles and the disciples that he built up are there with him, except for one friend is not there because that friend has gone to get the authorities and he comes into the garden leading the police in tow and he kisses Jesus on the cheek so that they'll know who to arrest. Do you know who did that? Judas. And Joseph was a part of the group that authorized the arrest of Jesus, which means he knows that it was one of Jesus' best friends who gave Jesus over for a bag of coins. Can you imagine? And then Joseph of Arimathea would have been there after they arrested Jesus and they brought him to the the high priest's home for this trial, this mock twisting of justice. Joseph was there while Jesus' closest friends were in the courtyard warming themselves by a fire instead of standing in there to try to defend them. And he must have known that Peter, one of his closest friends, denied even knowing Jesus three times at that critical moment. Can you imagine the betrayal? Joseph saw when Jesus was struck in the face as he was sitting there peacefully, abused physically. Only a person who has been abused physically, as God help us, maybe some of you have, will know the indignity of having done nothing wrong but suffering violence for it. He was struck in the face. The soldiers dressed him up as a king and mocked him. They hit him repeatedly in the head with a stick. They pushed a crown of thorns on his head. They spit in his face. That is one of the ugliest things one person can do to another person. And all of this Jesus lived through and Joseph saw it all happen. And then he watched as they flogged Jesus, they beat him, they made him carry his own cross up the hill and then Joseph watched as all of Jesus' devotees stood at a distance not able to intervene and he was even there when the thousands of people who Jesus had come to save were given the freedom to free Jesus instead of Barabbas, who was a notorious criminal, and instead of saying, yeah, go ahead and free him, the crowd shouted, crucify him. They wanted his blood. And Joseph saw all that. And then, amidst all of that, what he saw in Jesus was the beauty and power of character and courage and compassion that broke his heart wide open so that he was completely and totally transformed. If you see Jesus... When you see Jesus, you will see these things. I want to take my time here for a moment. When you see Jesus, the first thing that you will see is character. And by character, I mean the resolve not only to make decisions and say you're going to do something, but actually follow through and do the thing that you should do even when it's hard for you. Do you know what I mean when I say character like that? Haven't you ever made a choice? It's a good choice. You know it's the right thing to do, but then you don't do it until tomorrow when you make the choice again and you still don't do it. And we've seen friends do this and people who have decided I'm gonna stand up for Jesus. I imagine there were more than one moment in in Joseph's past where he had decided I'm finally gonna let it out that I don't think this is right and I'm a follower of Jesus, but he lacked the thing he needed, which he saw in Jesus, which is character. And when he watched Jesus walk all the way from the garden to the cross, 
even though it cost him all that, what he saw was character and it inspired him. Do you see it? Does it inspire you? The second thing he saw, in addition to this character, was courage. And that also changed him. And isn't it true when you see an act of courage, it changes you? And, and listen now, I don't mean an act of confidence. Uh, do you know what I mean by confidence as, as opposed to courage? Confidence is that moment where you say, I'm finally not afraid anymore. I'm finally assured that I can do it. I have what it takes. That's confidence. That is not what Joseph saw in Jesus. He saw something different, which is courage. And courage is the ability and the willingness and the determination to do the right thing, even though you are still completely scared out of your mind. You're completely terrified. You don't have the confidence. Courage is to go ahead and do that anyway. And when Jesus prayed in the garden and said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will and not my will be done. He was terrified, but he did the right thing anyway. And Joseph saw that. And that courage inspired him to have what he didn't have, which is courage. And you need that too, don't you? Now, both of those are good. Character and courage are magnificent, but together they're not enough to transform someone. What is critical is this last ingredient, which Joseph also saw in Jesus in a measure that he had never seen before, and it's compassion. And if you take one thing from this time together with me, would you take this? You are the object of God's immeasurable compassion. You are. Not object, you're the subject. You are the woman who he knows everything about and his heart is so wide open to you because he loves you more than you could dare dream or ever even imagine. You are the man right now who God looks at with his fatherly gaze from heaven above and he loves you so much you couldn't even dream of it. And Joseph got to see this because when he was standing in this crowd, please get this, and I know you'll see it, when he was standing in that crowd, what he understood the moment that Jesus was dying is that man there who is innocent and who has been crucified because of a perversion of justice is there because of me. Do you see what I mean? You might not think you had anything to do with Jesus' death, but can't you see how Joseph would have known that he had a hand in it because he was a part of the team that passed the verdict and he didn't say anything. So he can literally say, he's dying because of me. But there was something that happened in that moment that made him also know that Jesus was dying not only because of him, but for him too. Because as Jesus was there about to perish, he prayed out loud in front of the whole crowd and he said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And Joseph knew in that moment that Jesus was praying for him. He knew that in that moment, his cowardice and inability to admit that he was a follower of Jesus because of his fear for what he would lose was the very thing that Jesus was asking his heavenly father to forgive in that moment. Because when Jesus looked at Joseph, too afraid to admit he followed him, what he knew was he didn't know what he was doing. And the truth about you, in whatever ways you resist following Jesus, the truth about you, whatever good reasons you have for it, the truth about you is that when Jesus looks at you, he wants God to forgive you for that because he knows that you don't know what you're doing. 
And the truth about every action of ours, whether it's a betrayal of a trust that we should never have betrayed, or whether it's an anxiety that makes us pretend we're someone we're not, or whether it's the the shame that we've carried that if anyone knew they would be scandalized, or whether it's our ambivalence because we just haven't seen enough yet, whatever the, the thing is that keeps us from following Jesus, the truth about it is every moment we let it keep us from following Jesus, strictly speaking, we don't know what we're doing. Because what we were made for, every one of us, is with reckless abandon and hearts overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us, we're made to let go of whatever holds us back and run joyfully down the path that Jesus is leading us on. And so Jesus' prayer on the cross in that moment was for Joseph of Arimathea, it was for everyone in the Sanhedrin who by a perversion of justice had killed Jesus, they didn't know what they were doing. For all of the disciples who were as of yet, too afraid to admit they were followers of his. For all the people in the crowd who'd just come to see a spectacle, when Jesus looked at them all, he wanted God to forgive them because it was their ignorance that kept them from coming with him. And what Jesus wants for all of us and what he got with Joseph was for us to give our hearts to him. Having seen this character and this courage and this compassion, Joseph's heart was broken wide open And he was able to give Jesus the first thing that Jesus wants, which is his heart. And that's what you're meant to do. If you don't do it, you don't know what you're doing. And I can say that for for those of you who would lose a small thing for following him, and I will dare to say it, even if you lose what I can't imagine for following him openly. Whatever you lose for following Jesus, lose it. Whatever you gain for not following Jesus, it's not worth it. Whatever you'd have to give up to admit and go with him, give it up. Whatever you retain from holding on to your own self in your heart, even if it's a sense of pride that you are your own judge and you've decided that you're not worthy, whatever it is that you have to let go of to follow him, let it go and let him have your heart. And that's what he wants. This is the last word I wanna say to you. There's one reason why he wants it. And it's what I said at the beginning. He wants it because you are beloved to him. He wants it because he he made you and he knows you through and through and you are beloved to him. And so give him your heart. If you've given already, take your hands off it and give it again. If you never have, now is the moment. Do not let anything hold you back. There is no reason for you not to let it go and give your heart to the king, the Lord Jesus. He made your heart and it will never be okay until you give it to him. And so give it to him now. Let's pray together, okay? God, I thank you for this brilliant picture of what it looks like when a man who was following you secretly finally decided to give you his heart entirely. I thank you for his story which inspires us. And I pray very simply that for having seen it, that we would be moved either to have the fire in us that already burns burn more brightly or for the very first time to turn ourselves over to you entirely so that you have our hearts. We want you to help us grow so that we can go out into the world and because of our love for you, show others who you are. That's what we want. God, whatever holds us back, uh, for any person in this room right now who's still Uh, drawing back from you. God, would you in this moment speak to their heart in your spirit? And would you make 
it known to them that even if today they do not decide at all and they still can't decide, that you, you still love them and that your prayer for them still is for the mercy and benevolence of God the Father because it is only in ignorance that we hold ourselves back from you and then would you continue to keep the door open and invite them in. God, lastly, I thank you for Renaissance Church for the chance to be a part of a community like this. God, would you help me and everyone here continue to grow? Help us see you so that we, we follow you and then use us to show others who you are. We pray in Jesus' name all together. Amen.